the Radio Stingray podcast is brought to you by our gold sponsor, McNally Jones Staff Lawyers, proudly supporting the MUA Sydney branch since 1977. Need assistance with employment, industrial or workers' compensation, or any other legal problem? Phone 9233 4744 or visit mcnally.com.au and get a real fighting lawyer on your side. tuned in to Radio Stingray. Comrades and friends and all our listeners out there in podcast land, welcome to our latest edition of Radio Stingray. Radio Stingray is the regular podcast of the Maritime Union of Australia Sydney branch. Today's show is part of a feature section of Radio Stingray, a monthly look at issues, struggles and events that we think is interesting for Australian workers. Please go to Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts to subscribe. I have Shane reside with me in the studio. Shane, how are you going today? Yeah, good, mate. With us uh, today, we're going to be speaking to Kat Chanani, who is the National President of the National Union of Workers, which is a, uh, a union that organises workers in the private sector. Now, uh, particularly, we're going to be speaking to Kat about the farm workers sector um, and some of the struggles uh, and and hardships that are facing workers in that sector, um, which I think are struggles that all of us and all workers in Australia can relate to in one way or another. That's right, Shane. I mean, migrant workers and visa workers have been given an incredibly poor rap in this country going back many, many, many decades. We had the White Australia policy. We had the, the Chinese in the gold fields. There's been numerous examples where migrants and visa workers have been scapegoated because of the attacks by the corporate sector. Uh, the latest examples we've seen in the food industry, in the restaurant sector, we've got these celebrity chefs who are lauded on MasterChef, leading multi-million dollar lifestyles, paying their workers below the award, robbing them. In our own industry, we have seafarers who have been unemployed many now for a number of years as a consequence of their inability to compete with third world labour, um, as a consequence of government legislation. We've seen the impact that this has on their lives and we've seen the, the types of discussions that occur as a consequence of that in the media. We've seen the rise of the far right and the Hansonites and others who depict migrants as our enemies. But I think today's show is going to be an opportunity for us to explore all of these issues in a rounded way and that we may all get a little bit more understanding about not only migrant workers, but the impact that this has on, on the Australian economy and Australian workers. Yeah, look, there's a lot of shit talking about migration and migrant workers in Australia. Uh, migrant workers doing this or doing that, but there's not actually much informed discussion about what is actually going on. Who are the migrant workers coming to Australia and why? How does migration change the working class in Australia and what does it mean for working class solidarity and, and unionism? So listeners, there's a couple of facts that we can use to give us uh, an understanding about what we're talking about today. It wasn't, in fact, some left-wing conspiracy to overrun the country with non-white people. It was, in fact, John Howard, the great conservative warrior, who in '96 uh, changed the whole process of how migration would operate in this country. Uh, and he actually increased the figures from 85,000 in that year 
to last year's figures of 208,000. So we've seen a, a, a huge exponential increase at the same time as we've seen the racist rhetoric increase alongside it. We've seen a huge increase in temporary migration to Australia through short-term work visas. We've seen the 457s and other various visas being used and being abused by employers. And we've seen uh, attempts by migrants to seek permanent residency. So there's obvious uh, components in that which are levers to uh, change the macroeconomic outcomes of this country. We've seen industry come to the side of huge increases in visas to utilise this hyper-exploitative arrangement. And we've seen Australian workers themselves oppose migration because of their belief that migrants are stealing their jobs. So all of these facts and figures will be discussed in some way, shape or form today. And I hope you can use that as a basis for your understanding of today's episode. So after the break, we'll be talking to Kat Chinani from the National Union of Workers. She's the president and she'll be giving us her take on her industry. At Unity Bank, we are 100% committed to maritime workers. We pride ourselves on delivering better all-round value to our members and their families. Unity Bank, proud supporter of the Maritime Union of Australia and sponsor of this podcast. So with us to discuss some of these questions, we're very lucky to have the formidable president of the National Union of Workers, Katerina Chanani, on the phone. G'day, Kat. Hi, how are you? Over the last few years, we've heard lots of inspiring things about the work your union is doing organising migrant workers in Australia, including those people who do one of the most important jobs in the country, growing our fruit and veggies. Perhaps to kick it off, can you please tell us a bit about the National Union of Workers and who are the members of your union and where do they work? Yep, sure. So the National Union of Workers, or the NUW, uh, basically covers a few key industries in the economy. So we cover food, everything from what you just spoke about, the fresh food workers that pick and pack fruit and veggies that end up on the supermarket shelves. But we also cover dairy, we cover poultry, we cover general food production. We also cover the logistics, which is the distribution straight into the supermarket. So your Woolies and your Coles distribution centres, but also a range of other logistics in terms of 3PL and general moving of goods um, through the economy. We also have a manufacturing sector, which does plastics, pharmaceuticals. And we also unusually have a white collar section of our union, which does market research and call centers. So it sort of covers a lot of the service side of the economy. And a lot of our workers are in insecure casual work across all of those sectors. So, yeah, that's who we are. Roughly speaking, what would be your membership nationally? So roughly we are about 80,000 workers nationally uh, and we're predominantly a private sector union as well. So we don't have much much exposure to the public sector. We deal purely in the private sector economy, which I think, you know, which their MUA deals with as well. So we deal with private corporations in the main and a little bit of public corporations also. In the sectors that you organise, what proportion of workers would you estimate were not born in Australia? Okay, so my role, so I am the president, but my day-to-day role is that I run the team that does the fresh food and the poultry teams in our union nationally. So in those sectors, when we're talking about migrant workers, it's roughly about 90%. 90% of the workers in those sectors would be migrant workers. 
having said that, what that means, and I'd just like to define sometimes what migrant workers are. I mean, some will be workers who have migrated to Australia many, many years ago. So people like my parents who came from Italy after the war, we will have like a range of people who are permanent residents, Australian citizens, but were not necessarily born in Australia. And then we also have a big chunk of workers who are here on a temporary basis on a range of different visas across those sectors too. But 90% of the workers we organise in these two sectors would be migrant workers. Thanks for that, Kat. One of the reasons so it's that... A huge, it's a Sorry. huge proportion. <laughs> Sorry, I was going to say it's a huge proportion of um, workers. So we've had to really think about how we organise workers in this in these two sectors because yeah, it just means we have to change how we look and what we do. Thanks for that, Kat. One of the reasons that we wanted you to talk to us on Radio Stingray today is that your union has really stepped up and taken on a leadership role when it comes to the question of increasing labour migration and how to organise yep. in that space. So in a nutshell, how do you think that unionists should approach the emergence of non-white foreign labour migration to Australia? Um, well, I love that idea of not... I mean, as a non-white labour migrant myself... <laughs> Look, I think it's just some basic principles about what it means to be union. I mean, the way we organise workers and, and the message I often have for migrant workers and organising migrant workers is firstly welcoming them in terms of when they come in to the workplaces that you're working in or in the community is actually welcoming them into that workplace from a union perspective. So I always share my mum's story in this regard. When she first came to Australia and started working in the factories, many of the local workers would actually take the new migrants kind of like under their wings and teach them about what it means to be union, teach them about their job, teach them about like how not to get into trouble. And so they fostered a real union you know, a real union spirit by actually taking care of their workers. And so for me, I don't distinguish between whether a worker is a migrant worker, was born in Australia or not born in Australia. You treat workers the same whenever they come into the workplace. You welcome them to their first job. You welcome them to the country if that's their first time in the country and you welcome them to the union. So we've always followed that philosophy in terms of the way we organise workers, that we don't distinguish between where they come from, but rather that that's their first time in a workplace and that should be our role is to welcome them into the union. Kat, in the farm worker sector that you've been organising, what are the conditions like? The conditions in farm work, and I'll just probably explain it, like farm work has, union density has been very, very low. It's like uh, 1%. So we're talking about a sector of the economy where corporations have had power for a long, long time. And that has created a real distortion in terms of the rights of workers because workers have had none. So when we're talking about the conditions that we're coming across in the fresh food sector, we're talking about a real fragmentation of the labour market. So workers are not employed directly in the main. They're employed through contractors. And those contractors aren't labour hire agencies. They're like individual contractor arrangements where you might have one person who basically employs hundreds of workers on behalf of a farmer and as a result most of them are paid in cash they're paid below the minimum wage and are in highly exploitative circumstances and if they're workers who are on visas many of the dodgy contractors also operate as dodgy migration agents and are extorting money from them and are also we've had you know we've had to encounter issues of sexual exploitation as well in relation to workers securing either visa or work through those contractors so it's a really it's like it's the worst example of what occurs 
when there are no unions and where workers don't have any control or power in their in their workplace. The other big issue in this sector is that the minimum laws allow a piece rate arrangement where workers get paid by the piece. But what happens because there has been no control by workers in those arrangements is that piecework invariably means that workers are getting paid very, very little um, um, for working very long hours. So we're talking about very, very low pay, a lot of stuff happening in the black economy and having individual contractors basically in charge of hundreds of workers and basically controlling their whole lives, including where they live and how they get to work. So yeah, it's not, it's kind of a lesson for unions that if you allow union, unions to not grow and thrive and build power and you actually do the opposite where you allow sectors of the economy to decline, that workers invariably end, end up in very exploitative arrangements. Well, that's an amazing story, and we've often seen um, extreme examples being exposed uh, through investigative journalism and whatnot. What has the regulators or the ombudsman done to protect workers in this space, given the crimes that are being committed work against workers in this in this area? I think you know we come from a, a basis that part of the reason this occurs is because workers aren't in unions. So one of the things that we constantly are arguing with the regulators is the freedom for workers to be in the union. Because when workers organise in a sector like this, what invariably happens is that they're actually not just organising against the person who's controlling the farm in terms of the corporation that might be owning the farm. They're also organising against the contractors that are employing them. And some of these contractors are pretty dodgy and are involved in very, very um, in criminal activity. So workers are actually placing not just their jobs at risk, but often are under threats of being deported. And, and we've also had like threats of physical violence against workers when they have tried to join unions. So one of the things we constantly have argued with the regulators is that, that what they should do is protect workers' rights to be union. And we find that they tend to not understand that. And, and I think primarily that is because they don't understand the reasons in which this industry, uh, this particular industry, why these re why this exploitation occurs is because workers have not been in unions and have not been organised to be union for a long time. So, and, and also I think the other thing is that, you know, we as a union don't put much faith in laws resolving these issues for workers or regulators. We believe workers should have the power to do it. So we spend a lot of time organising workers to not just be in the union but actually have the courage to stand up and then throw a, all the resources of our union and the movement behind workers to protect them when they do that. Um, so the regulators do things, like they do things, they have been taken a few cases to court. I remember a picket line once that I was on where, and I use this a lot with our workers and our delegates and our members, where the workers wrote on like on a blackboard in the front of the picket line that there is no justice, there is just us. And I think that's a philosophy that we use a lot. We don't get justice from the regulators, we don't get justice from the courts. Where we often get justice from is on the ground by workers taking action and doing things to highlight their struggle and continuing to campaign for fair conditions. So we don't rely on the regulators very much and I don't have much confidence in them being able to deal with something that is systematic in this industry. Kat, how many people are working on farms in Australia? And earlier you mentioned that about 90% of the people in that industry are probably not born in Australia. From what places are these people from? 
basically I'll break down the groups of workers that can operate in this sector. So what I'm talking about is a horticultural sector, so just the food, the fresh fruit and veggie sector of the economy. It employs roughly about 100,000 workers just in the production of fresh fruit and vegetables. So if you look at, and I'll break down like the types of workers, the countries they come from and just sort of like in a general way the makeup of the workforce. And bear in mind in one farm you have all of these workers working alongside each other. So you'll have what I call the local worker community, which is very established migrant groups who have been in Australia for a long time. So you'll have like, you know, the Vietnamese and the Cambodian communities that are very established as uh, a core group of workers in the farm industry. And then alongside them, you'll also have recently resettled refugees. So we have many, many Hazara and Rohingya refugees who have settled in Australia through the refugee programs and are working in farms. So those sort of communities comprise of probably, you know, in some farms, probably about 50% of the labour of the labour market. Then we have workers who are on particular visas that are targeted to the industry. So there's a seasonal worker program, which is the Pacific Islander program, and they come to Australia every six months, work in the farms that have seasonal crops, and then they return back to the Pacific and and they continue doing that, you know, six months on, six months off. So that's the Pacific nations, that's uh, Vanuatu, Tonga, Samoa, Fiji. So there's that that particular group. Then there are the working holiday makers. So I know there's been a lot of media reports about the working holiday makers from Taiwan and from China in more recent times. So they come on a visa that allows them to work for six months in, in any industry, but in their second year, they must work 88 days in farms in order to get a second year visa. And there's been lots of issues with the way they've been treated when they turn up to many of these farms. Then there's a very big group that no one really wants to talk about, but we are organising and we're trying to share their stories, which are what we call undocumented workers. And it's basically workers who are on a combination of different visas where they might come here on tourist visas and might end up on protection visas, but invariably they might have no work rights. And they are very much exploited by very dodgy contractors. They're promised work, they're promised visas, and then they get here and they're trapped in farms where they're not paid very much and they've paid for visas that don't really exist. So that's a very, very large pool of workers and they're mainly from Malaysia and Indonesia. So we have organised as a union across all of those. So we have members in every single group from the local permanent migrant workers to the refugees, to the backpackers, to the Pacific Islands and including the ones that you would think would be the hardest to organise, which is the undocumented workers because they have the, the most to fear, we've organised in those segments and they're some of our most active and courageous workers who are standing up and trying to fight for the rights of workers who have are completely out of every... You know, they're completely not covered by any regulation in Australia right now in terms of industrial rights or even social rights. Kat, the Grapes of Wrath showcase decades ago, the... <laughs> What the exploitation of farm workers looked like and it gave me my understanding about how degraded and criminal this industry is. But we also saw the rise of the United Farm Workers led by Chavez in the US, which proved that farm workers are seeking dignity and justice and they want to be organised and they want to be united. What does dignity and justice look like in this industry? 
Oh, that's a really good question. And and I think both of those examples that you gave are ones that we've really thought about when we've talked about organising farm workers. But dignity and justice in this industry, one, first and foremost, means that at least the minimum wage is being paid, which does not sound like a huge, like something that we should be aiming for. But in fact, in an industry like this, the min- if the minimum wage was paid, it would fix 90% of the issues. The other thing that dignity and respect looks like is actually having workers having control over their lives. So not just you know being able to choose where they live, how they get to work. They're fundamental freedoms that workers in this industry don't have. When they're employed by contractors, the contractor says to them, if you want to work on this farm, you must come on this minibus and you must pay the driver X amount and you don't have a choice. And if you try to exercise your choice to do to do it your own way and get there in your own on your own steam, they lose shifts. So freedom, basic freedoms to live where you want, travel to work the way you want, and to have a secure job, secure employment, where you are employed either directly through the farm or alternatively not employed by a contractor but employed by a proper ethically licensed labour agency, where you actually have the confidence that you are you you know that if you are underpaid you will be paid that you will be paid that money back we've seen workers right across this industry who have had their wages stolen and have never received justice because the contractor goes under and runs away so yeah. you know that that's what justice and dignity looks like it's secure jobs secure employment secure lives and it's actually having a voice at work, being able to raise issues and not be threatened with your job, not be threatened with deportation and not be threatened with your safety if you decide to raise an issue at work. These questions are often heightened emotionally by the politics of fear and reaction. It's often oh, described yeah. as it's Australians versus foreigners. Why is this principle yes. incorrect? It's just about where how you come at it. So when I, when I, when you think of something like, you know, Australian versus foreigners. Well, what is an Australian? Like, I'm an, I'm an Australian, I'm Australian born, but I come from a migrant family and I identify both as an Australian and as uh, the daughter of migrant Australia. In farms, a lot of these workers were, um, even if they weren't born in Australia, are Australian residents and are Australian citizens and are still being exploited significantly. So, you know, the, the, the idea that there's, a, you know, locals versus others, well, locals are migrant workers. And we are migrants as a nation, unless you, you know, excluding our First Nation representatives who really are the owners, the traditional owners of this land. So, you know, for me, I I find that argument really frustrating and I don't know where it's coming from. And I think part of it is the politics of division is that is, is very much being led by corporations. And I think that what we are doing is we're failing to identify where it's coming from and actually putting it back on the corporations and actually building solidarity with workers. And maybe the best way for me to explain it, because I like to explain it in terms of the experience of workers, I had to organise a poultry facility where there was this tension. There was a tension between what, let's just call it the local workforce, which are people who have lived in that region and area for a long, long time. They were very multicultural themselves versus a group of workers that were kind of being bussed in and not being paid correctly, being paid below the agreement, employed by a contractor, paid in cash. For a long time, there were tensions between the workers in terms of, you know, 
that those that the Vietnamese workers that were being bussed in were not part of our community and our group. One of the things we did is we started with our local members and our local the workers who'd been there a long time and basically said to them, "What is it that you're upset about?" And some of the things they were upset about was that people in their own geographical region and young people weren't getting jobs. And that's fair enough. I understand that. I, I completely understood that. But what we explored was was the idea of, well, why don't we ask the company to employ some young people from the area and at the same time ask them to make sure that the workers who are coming in by the contractor are paid equally? Because if we, we knew that if we did both of those things, that if we actually got the contractors paid correctly, that the competition between workers would dissipate. You wouldn't have a problem where some people were being paid below the agreement and some people were being paid the agreement and there was a competition. The other thing that we did was really speak to our members about breaking barriers down because what the company did would be bus workers in, give them a different supervisor, different lunch break, completely segregate them from the workforce. That's not the workers' fault. The workers were who were contractors were afraid to be in the union and raise their issues because the power was held completely by the head contractor that if they did that, they would lose their jobs. So we had to like start from a simple basis of visiting people at home, talking to them about their rights, building solidarity between the two groups. That particular work site almost went on strike in order to get those contractors paid equally, and they won. They actually did that for the first time. Some of those contractors became direct workers. They joined the union, and as a result, all of the contractors then wanted to join the union because they all wanted direct jobs. After that campaign, the company for the first time advertised jobs in the local community. First time in 10 years. But it took the workers to understand that they were not in competition with each other. The real problem was that the company was using a group of workers to undermine the conditions that all of them had fought for for a long time. And you have to build solidarity and put the pressure back on the company. Look, I'm really glad you raised that actually, Kat, because here on Radio Stingray, we've been talking a lot about the ACTU's Change the Rules campaign. And for those who aren't familiar with it, uh, the Change the Rules campaign is a broad union-driven attempt at forcing the ruling class to change the rules and regulations that govern how we as workers organise into unions and how through our unions we bargain for paying conditions. One of the issues that keeps getting raised again and again is the question of the right to strike. And you mentioned there briefly that uh, that work site you're describing uh, moved yeah. towards taking strike action. In your experience of organising the horticultural sector, is the right to strike important uh, for organising uh, American workers in that sector? Absolutely. Look, the right to strike is important for all workers in Australia. It's important for your members, it's important for our, our members and our workers. I mean, it's a fundamental freedom that workers must have. And it is the only thing that workers have that they can rely on because they control it. And I think this is the thing, you know, coming back to the idea that someone else is going to fix our problems, whether that is a government, whether that is a judge, whether that is, you know, a regulator, no one is going to deal with the issues of inequality, power imbalance, unless workers actually have some power to raise concerns, have a voice at work, but more importantly, have the right to strike on issues that they care about, on issues that affect their lives. And the way, you know, the system we have now is a perverse system where not only do workers not have the right to strike, but the barriers are so enormous and where capital and corporations with significant money and interest behind them basically, you know, frustrate and fundamentally try to suppress workers' rights to take action. I mean, if, if corporate Australia were good 
employers, no one would go on strike, but they're not. And so fundamentally, workers need to have the ability to take strike action in order to ensure that they are doing, that they are able to have lives of dignity and have control because that is the one thing they control is their labour. We're very much a union that wants to give workers back their voice and give workers back the power and give workers control over their lives and the right to strike is fundamental to that. Kat, thanks so much for coming on Radio Stingray. Look, it's a, it's a really inspiring story hearing about the work that your union is doing and it's really inspiring hearing about all of these migrant workers that are growing the food and vegetables that the rest of us eat. Hearing them organise and hearing them start to fight the bosses is something that I think all of us can draw hope and inspiration from. Yeah. And if there's anything that uh, those of us in the Maritime Union can do to contribute to support that struggle, I'm sure that our comrades will be 100% prepared to do that. And vice versa, thank you for asking me to come on the show and share the experience of Migrant Australia. And I think also if there's anything that we can do in terms of being part of the debate about organising migrant workers, I know I know there's issues in a lot of the industries. We, we're more than happy, you know, to come and assist wherever you need in that, in that area and provide solidarity and support to your union too. Beautiful. Thanks very much, Kat. Thank you. This segment is brought to you by RT Health, your industry mutual not-for-profit health fund that has been looking after members like you since 1889. Call us on 1300 564646 to find out how you can join the crew and benefit from the exclusive MUA health plan. Welcome back to Radio Stingray. Uh, that was a fantastic insight from Kat Chinani, the president of the National Union of Workers, discussing her union's attempt at trying to organise uh, in one of those sections of the Australian working class that is now constituted largely by migrant workers. Increasingly, the Australian working class has actually transformed from one where most of the people uh, working in a particular industry are citizens of this country who are long-term residents of this country um, to one where there's uh, much larger numbers of temporary migrant workers who are doing the work for a short period of time and then going back to their country of origin. And that represents lots of challenges uh, for those people themselves and the conditions that they experience, but it also represents challenges uh, for unionists and unions in Australia and about the ways that we organise uh, to make sure that the uh, the interests of the working class broadly are advanced. And that is a question that's been particularly poignant uh, in the maritime industry, Maka. I mean, I know that that's something that the Maritime Union has been dealing with, particularly around uh, seafarers. Well, you're right, Shane, and it's something that our industry has had to struggle with for centuries. The maritime industry was really the first industry internationally to have exported and imported labour. When you think about seafarers who came from all around the world, uh, we had wharfies in this country who, after the Second World War, um, were you know dominated by the migration from from that war, uh, and we've always had a, a wonderfully progressive handle on it. Even though, at the very same time, we've had some hypocrisy uh, in our statements about uh, migration and about visas and about the impact of overseas workers on our industry, but. Every seafarer right now understands and recognises that market forces is not working for them. Market forces are often, you know, used as uh, the answer to solve all of our problems. Yet, how is it possible for an Australian seafarer to compete with an exploited overseas seafarer who are often paid a dollar or two dollars an hour, 
when they're when they're earning around thirty dollars an hour. It's impossible. We're going to see wharfies uh, displaced as a consequence of automation. We've already seen examples of where cranes can be driven from uh, a another country, where you know just as an extension of the IT. Uh, area where many workers in that industry were displaced by overseas exploited labour. So we will see with wharfies as well. So this issue is going to rise and rise again, as it always has throughout our history. Technological change, uh, changes to government policy has really allowed um, workers to be used and, and abused in more exploited ways. Well, that brings us to the end of this special feature of Radio Stingray. I'd like to put a special thanks to Kat Chanani from the National Union of Workers. Uh, these are certainly important issues for all of us to grapple with. Uh, don't forget to go to Google Podcasts or Apple iTunes to subscribe if uh, you haven't already, and then come over to the MUA Facebook page and join the discussion. See you next time. You're tuned in to Radio Stingray.